Have you ever been hurt by someone in the church? Maybe it wasn't just one person in the church. Maybe it was a whole bunch of people in the church. Have you ever been hurt? And then what happens when you're hurt? You start to kind of hold it against the church and you let bitterness and resentment build. Maybe it was something that that was on purpose. Maybe they came up to you and they they said something antagonistic and mean-hearted. Maybe someone just dropped you. I think, I know I've struggled with that when someone I thought was like my best friend all of a sudden just quit talking to me. And it hurt. Maybe it was something unintentional. You thought someone gave you the cold shoulder and they didn't even really understand that that's how you interpreted it. Maybe they said something that you interpreted wrong. I think we have all been hurt by the church because the church is made up of people. And the church fails. If you haven't been hurt by the church yet, uh, I'm sorry to be the informer of bad news, but you will be. It's made up of people that fail, that don't always do things correctly. And so what typically happens is someone gets hurt by the church, and if they don't learn through, through the process of reconciliation, if they don't stay committed to the gospel, the, that hurt festers, and slowly they begin to step out of the church. They let it fade. And then the love for the gospel starts to fade as well. How often have you heard the the phrase, I love Jesus, but I don't like Christians. I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. I hear it all the time. Or I hear, I go to the church of the trail. I, did, I had a great time with God today walking through nature. And though I think you can have a great time with God walking through nature, it's not a replacement for the church The church is something God ordained, and he he gave us the church for a purpose. If you want to know more about that purpose, come to Christian's Sunday school class at 9.30. But what happens is we begin to let it all fade. We quit going to church. Pretty soon we quit reading our Bible. Pretty soon we quit praying. Pretty soon our relationship with God has been severed. We've let it go. We've all experienced church hurt. But what makes the difference? That's what we're going to study about today as we start to uh, look at Better Together, an introduction to Ephesians. So we're going to study through Ephesians, but today, instead of turning right to Ephesians, I want to lay the groundwork for Ephesians. Why did Paul even write Ephesians? So we're actually going to look at Acts 19. So why did Paul write Ephesians? So some background information. The the letter is written by the Apostle Paul. It was written approximately 62 A.D. Uh, There's a little bit of debate between 60 and 62. I like actually the 60 date, but, but we can go with anywhere from 60 to 62. The audience was the church at Ephesus, but it was more than just the church at Ephesus. So this is actually the most general epistle that Paul writes. And what do I mean by general? I mean, he doesn't go through a whole list of names 
for this epistle. So if you like read Romans, by the time you get to Romans 16, Romans 16 is almost an entire list of names. And you just read through all these names and, and kind of get to know some characters of the early church. The letter to Ephesians is not that way. And I think it's not that way because Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, a church he deeply loves, with people he is very connected to, but he also knows what plagues the church at Ephesus is what will plague several other churches throughout the centuries, including ours. So it's a church that is, or it's a letter written to the church at Ephesus, but it's a general epistle, meaning every church should be studying it. Every church will struggle with the same issues. Every church needs to take this to heart. So what is the occurrence? Well, let's get into it. Let's, in order to find out the occurrence, we need to find out how the church developed. So we'll start off in chapter 19. There's a little bit more of an introduction to the church at Ephesus in 18, the last paragraph of 18, and we'll give a little background after we're done reading. Chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded." And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the, in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right, so actually the rest of chapter 19 is going to talk about Ephesus, and there's going to end up becoming a big riot 
at Ephesus. We don't have enough time to cover all of that. But there becomes a big riot at Ephesus, and Paul has to leave. But even after Paul leaves, the church continues to thrive. So that's something important to note, that the church, Ephesus was known for uh, a goddess Artemides, and, uh, and there was a big temple to her. And so this was like a big trade. The temple was a big trade. Uh, through ancient world. If you were a part of the temple, you relied on the money, you wanted to keep that money coming in, and any threat to that was a threat to your livelihood. So uh, that ends up causing a big riot. So we can see the passion of the followers of Jesus at Ephesus, uh, their passion stirred up people and invoked jealousy to create a uh, riot. But they stayed faithful and true as far as Acts uh, is concerned. So, uh, let's jump in. And it happened that, well, Apollos. So this is the backstory here. So Apollos was a Jew who was Alexandrian. He was Hellenistic, which means that he had taken on a lot of Greek philosophy. He spoke Greek, but he was Jewish. He was from uh, the Egyptian city of Alexandria. And he comes up and he's preaching a gospel. Now, Paul, on his second missionary journey, stops in Ephesus just to drop off two people, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, these two run, then Paul leaves, I should mention that. Then Paul goes back to to, uh, Antioch. Priscilla and Aquila run into this guy named Apollos, who is preaching uh, preaching not the gospel, but preaching about John the Baptist. Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, and they teach him all about Jesus He comes to put his faith and trust in Jesus, and then he goes over to Corinth to help the church in Corinth. Paul begins his third missionary journey, and that's where we pick up, actually. Uh, So Apollos has gone to Corinth. Paul is passed through the inland country. So he's going back from Antioch, coming up around, and he stops in Ephesus. So this is the beginning of his third missionary journey. There he found some disciples. Now this term disciple... Uh, is a very Jewish term. And these disciples, we're going to find out, was very, are very similar to what Apollos was teaching. So this Jewish term, uh, we use this term often, uh, and it almost becomes synonymous with believer or Christian, and it's not exactly synonymous with Christian. In fact, uh, one of the questions I usually like to ask in one of my Sunday school classes is, uh, can, can a disciple not be a Christian? And I think the answer is yes. We find that in John uh, chapter 6, verse 66. He says some difficult words, and then it follows up with, and a great majority of the disciples left him. So just because you call yourself a disciple doesn't necessarily mean you're a believer. So these are disciples, and part of the question is, a disciple of what? A disciple or a disciple was someone who followed a teacher. Not just, you know, studied up on him. They weren't just learned but they found a rabbi, they found a teacher that they loved, and they were that, or that teacher's, that rabbi's disciples. And so they did everything like that rabbi would do. They would try to walk like that rabbi walked. They would eat like that rabbi would eat. They would sleep. You know, they'd find out, hey, rabbi, do you, do you sleep on your stomach or do you sleep on your back? Maybe right side, left side. How do you do it? And he'd explain, and then you know what all those disciples would do? They'd start sleeping like that teacher would sleep. So when we call ourselves disciples of Christ, what we're saying is we want to be just like Christ. We want to eat like he ate. We want to sleep like he sleeps. We want to, everything he did, we want to do like he did. 
So you could see that's a very Jewish term. In fact, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul doesn't use the term disciple throughout all of his letters. So we see it here in Acts, but Paul never actually uses it because he's writing oftentimes to mostly Gentile audiences. And it was a term that they might not understand. So anyways, that he found some disciples. Disciples of what is the question? And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So this is going to be kind of a litmus test of whether or not you're true believers. You claim to be a, a disciple, a disciple of what? Well, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into uh, what then were you baptized? Into what then were you baptized? So he's trying to get to the point. He's trying for some clarification, right? Sometimes when we meet other people that claim to be believers, and in particular when you're in a Christian culture, not so much here in Flagstaff, but you know, if I traveled south, uh, you know, Texas, Georgia, th those are intensely Christian cultures. But just because you live in a Christian culture doesn't make you a Christian. So just because you claim to be a disciple doesn't make you a Christian. And what he's trying to do is get to the point, hey, what have you really put your faith and trust in? They might have the right language. But they might not know exactly what's going on. And so he asked them, what then, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So now he gets a picture of who they really are. So let's back up a little bit. John the Baptist's ministry was approximately 20 years before this. So uh, Paul enters into Ephesus around 50-52. He's going to write this letter around 60-62. He ministers for, in Ephesus for at least two years. So the letter of Ephesians is going to be written about eight years after this ministry here. But John the Baptist was about 20 years before. And what was John the Baptist's ministry? Well, he's going to tell him. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So John the Baptist had an assignment to be what's called the forerunner. So throughout Jewish prophecy, before the Messiah would come, there would be a forerunner who would talk about his coming. John the Baptist fulfills that ministry role. That's his ministry assignment. And so before Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist is going around telling everybody, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be baptized, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Essentially what this baptism means is that the Jews would identify with the kingdom of God and therefore the king who is coming. That's a big difference that we need to mark between the baptism we're baptized with and the baptism of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's ministry was specifically to Jews, and it was saying, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is coming. Who is the king? Jesus. And how do they identify with Jesus? Through this baptism. So it's a symbolic act of them saying, I want to identify with the one that you are proclaiming is coming. And so what do these believers, or what do these disciples do? They hear about John the Baptist's ministry. So think about it. 20 years ago, Jews were constantly coming into Jerusalem. At some point, there was some Jew that heard John the Baptist preach. 
He was probably baptized by John the Baptist. But he didn't stay there. He had to go back to whatever part of the country or whatever he lived, maybe Rome, maybe Ephesus, maybe Alexandria. But he knows about what John the Baptist was preaching about. He knows that the king was coming. And so he goes back into his city and he preaches the same, God, or the same thing. That there's a king coming. And we want to be associated with that king. So get baptized. Repent of your sins. Get baptized so you can be associated with the king who's coming. But because they were in Jerusalem during the time of Christ, they didn't know that the king actually came. That's what these disciples were doing. A lot of theologians would call them Old Testament saints. So they're kind of still operating out of the Old Covenant, out of the Old Testament. And so that's what's going on. That's the baptism that they're being baptized with. They're still uh, being identifying with this kingdom, but not necessarily the church. And they don't quite understand Christ's saving work on the cross. And so Paul's cutting through, and that's what he's getting at. So who is the one that John was proclaiming? Now Paul gets to tell them the gospel of who it is that they were actually they were baptized to, to identify with this one, but they didn't even understand it. So now they get to hear about this true one, the one that John the Baptist was pointing at. By the way, when Jesus comes on the scene, what does John the Baptist do? He points to Jesus and says, follow him. Quit following me. It's not about me anymore. I must decrease and he must increase Stop following me, follow him, because he's the one. And at that point, John's ministry totally changes. But since these people weren't in Jerusalem at that time, they didn't know that. They were out in Alexandria. They were still trying to follow what God had laid out for them as best they could. Now they have new information, and now they're going to change. So, uh, Paul tells him this, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we covered what that Old Testament, that Old Covenant baptism was about. It was identification with the kingdom of which the king, Jesus, was going to be the king. Why then a different baptism? Because they get baptized again. They get re-baptized. But this baptism is a different baptism. It's not to identify with the Jewish kingdom. So when John the Baptist was proclaiming the kingdom, it was specifically an earthly Jewish kingdom. But Paul says that's not what this baptism is about. So when we get baptized, we're not identifying with a Jewish kingdom to which Jesus is the king. We recognize that Jesus is the king. But our baptism is identification with Christ as our Savior. It's not to say I'm going to be a part of the earthly kingdom that God will establish here. It's to identify that Jesus has saved us from our sins. Baptism is, simply means to be immersed. Uh, there's a lot of uh, reason why we use the term baptism. In fact, it actually goes all the way back to when uh, the Greek and the Latin were being translated into English. And for centuries, the church had uh, instead of dipped, they had sprinkled. Well, we got to this word, we're translating it into English now, we get to this word baptized, and there's a problem. Baptism simply means immersed. Well, 
We can either confess that we've been doing it wrong for centuries, or we can do what's called transliterate it. And that means we can just bring the Greek word over into English and make it a new English word. And that's what they decided to do. So we could actually read here, into what were you immersed? Oh, we were immersed into John's immersion. Well, that's not the immersion that, uh, that the church is about. The church is about the immersion with Jesus. So it's about being immersed. And so there's this immersion into the water and coming back up. And that's a symbolic identification with Christ who, was, who died, was buried, and rose again. And so when we get baptized, we are identifying with Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection. And what it means to be found in Christ. We're saying we are no longer God, or we are no longer trying to claim to be God. But we recognize that Jesus is God, and that when we are found in him, then we are forgiven of all of our sins. We are made righteous, and we are justified. And that's what's going on with baptism. So hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they're saying, we want to be identified with Jesus. We want to be identified with this man who came, who, was, who is the Messiah, who came and died on the cross for my rebellion and your rebellion. We want to identify with him. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. So uh, what's interesting here is, well, I'll just keep going. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about 12 in all. So what's interesting here is that uh, after, the, after Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came. So often we think that there is power in ritual. That there is power and almost like some mysticism within ritual. And so we think that, you know, if we come to church, there's power in just coming to church. And if we read our Bible at the same time every day and pray the exact same way every day, that there's some kind of mystical power in that ritual. Well, oftentimes, uh, churches or people or cults can do the same thing, and I think God was trying to avoid that. So what we see the Holy, when we see the Holy Spirit fall upon a group of people, it's never the same way. So if we look at Acts 2, they repent, they're baptized, Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then we can skip to Acts 8 with the Samaritans. The apostles actually have to come and lay hands on them. But then Acts 10, the Gentiles get saved for the first time, and they're not even baptized. They just simply believe, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then Peter's like shocked. He's like, what's going on here? Let's hurry up and baptize you guys, because you've already got the Holy Spirit. And now we see here that Paul has to lay his hands on them. And so we see that every single time, there's something different. There's no ritual that we can follow do you want the holy spirit you can't like jump through or say certain specific things just to get the holy spirit god will not be manipulated and when we fall into like ritual what we're trying to do is manipulate god so when we ritualistically come to church we're trying to manipulate god and what we're doing is uh what some theologians call let's make a deal theology the deal is god i'll do the rituals and you give me the power and God doesn't play that game. 
God doesn't play your let's make a deal theology. And what often happens when we, make a, when we have a let's make a deal theology, we say, God, I'm going to do the ritual, and you have to stick to your part. And then when he doesn't stick to his part, and we experience pain, and we go through some tragedy, and we have some heartache and some hurt, we get mad and we shake our fist at God and say, God, I thought we had a deal. I did my part. I went to church. I read my Bible, and I prayed. So why aren't you holding up to your end of the deal? And we get mad, and we walk away. But God doesn't play let's make a deal theology. So he doesn't give us rituals that we can try to manipulate him with. Reading your Bible is good. Praying is good. Going to church, they're all good things that help us grow in God's grace. But just because we attend, just because we pray, just because we read, doesn't mean God owes us anything. So I think that's what's going on here, that, that God won't be manipulated, that there's no ritual that you can receive the Holy Spirit through. The reason why we receive the Holy Spirit is because of God's grace and God's mercy, and that's it. There's no other reason. So then they, they receive the Holy Spirit, and then they begin talking, speaking in tongues and prophesying. We're not going to spend too much time on this, but this is the last reference of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. Our church's official position is what's called cessationist. We believe that the tongues and prophesying and works of healings were sign gifts to signify or to authenticate that God was doing something new. And so we see this as a theme throughout Scripture, that when God speaks through people, when he does something new, he authenticates this through different signs. Now, I all, anytime I talk about this, I also need to give a disclaimer. Someone once called us a, a cessationist light, and I kind of liked that term. I might stick to it, because what I want to emphasize is just because we think the sign gifts stopped with the filling of Scripture doesn't mean we think God quit doing miracles. God still, to this day, works miracles. And I don't think we can ever limit God and say, God, you, you should stop doing miracles. God still does miracles. But these sign gifts were specifically given to authenticate that God was doing something. And I think they're specifically here in uh, Ephesus because the people of Ephesus were very mystic, they were very superstitious, and so God is going to use these sign gifts to authenticate the claim that salvation comes through Christ. But we won't see it used anymore throughout the book of Acts. All right, so we'll continue on. And he entered the synagogue. This is Paul's MO. This is what he does. Every city he goes to, he first enters the synagogue. And for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So he, he enters the synagogue. And for three months, think about that. For three months, he builds relationship. How often do we try to witness to somebody without ever building relationship? And then we walk away thinking we did our job. Well, the Holy Spirit can work through that. But I want to encourage you to try to build relationship with people. Find some people that don't believe. Spend some time investing in them. But don't just make it a pointless, meaningless, like, hey, we get together and we watch Netflix. He doesn't just show up at the synagogue, synagogue 
but he reasons and persuades. And he doesn't do it in an arrogant way. I think one of the best ways to evangelize is to first by asking, coming to an understanding. What do you believe? Oh, why do you believe that? But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, this term stubborn means hard-hearted. So these people had built up walls in their hearts and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So not only had they become hard-hearted, but they were now actively divisive. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. And I think this is another important part. Sometimes we think that if we just beat someone over the head with the gospel enough, they'll come to believe it. If we just, you know, use it as a weapon. And what does Paul do? He makes sure that they understands it thoroughly. And then he is inviting still. But he doesn't continue to show up beating them over the head with the gospel. There has been times in my life where I beat people over the head with the gospel and I did it wrong. I need to deliver the gospel, make sure they understand the gospel, but if they're hard-hearted, then I can actually quit preaching the gospel on a daily basis to them. I can still make it very inviting. I can let them know that I'm up for discussion at any moment, but I don't need to continue beating them up. So what does he do? He goes and reasons daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus was a, a wealthy guy who had a lecture hall, and he just let people come and use his lecture hall. He was interested in knowledge. He wanted to, he wanted to let people have free debate, and so he allowed it. And so what does Paul do? He leaves the synagogue because he knows that now he's just throwing pearl before swine, but he goes to this place where he knew people would be willing to listen And this is a sweet invitation for actually those Jews in the synagogue as well. They know where to find it. They know where to hear it. They've got more questions. They can come back. And so Paul allows that to happen. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so you can think about this picture. He's preaching in this lecture hall every day, and people are are coming and listening, and then they actually go out, and they tell more people about it in such a way that everyone in this area ends up hearing the gospel. Several churches were planted at this point. Several churches throughout Asia were planted at this point and start to thrive because of Paul's ministry at Ephesus where he goes to a lecture hall and every day teaches about the gospel. And he does it for two years. I think it's important to note that this is happening for two years. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So, uh, so uh, God is just working powerful miracles through Paul. Uh, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. So an itinerant Jewish exorcist is a Jew that travels around exercising demons. That's it. They're, they're casting out demons, uh, and they're traveling around to do this, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So what they're doing is they're going around, they, they see that Paul has this special power. And these people are caught up with power. The church, or not just the church, but 
the city, the culture of, of Ephesus was caught up in mysticism and power. And so these people see that it's the name of Jesus, and they think, oh, there's, here we go, we can add a new name to our incantation, right? And so that's what they do. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, and this is important, that they recognize they don't know Jesus. They don't even have faith in Jesus. They don't have faith in him, and they don't know him. Now, we can compare this with Mark 9, where there is someone who was not considered a disciple of Jesus, and he does cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And actually, the disciples are kind of mad, and they say, hey, Jesus, stop him. And Jesus says, no. That man had faith in Jesus, and he realized that the power wasn't in the name. The power wasn't in the name. It was in Jesus himself. These people think that the power is in the name, that it's some ritualistic, mystic thing that we can just apply to our life so that we can have the power. No, it's Jesus who has the power. And so what happens? Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So it's really quickly just uh, to point out that this wasn't, there's, we have a list of all of the Jewish high priests in the temple, and this man, Sceva, was never uh, a part of the Jewish high priest of the temple. Uh, the word a there is a ta in Greek, and it just means something. And so what, is, what he actually is is a cultish. So he's Jewish, but he also belongs to a cult, and he's a high priest of a Jewish cult, not the actual temple priest. And named Sceva, we're doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? So the spirits are saying, hey, look, you have no power, and that name has no power. They recognize that Jesus has the power. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Basically, they got a beat down. They thought they had power, and very quickly they realized that no matter what incantation they did, no matter what ritual they did, they still didn't have the power. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So people finally realized that through this incident, they realized that it's not just these mystical things that are happening. It's not just that Paul has like some secret formula that he's doing in private, that you, if you could just find, you could do the same thing and emulate, they realize through this example that the power is actually Jesus. That the one that Paul is proclaiming is real, and he has real power. And so what is the result? Also, many of those who were now believers came. So this is specifically talking about believers. Some of them who have been believers for two years, I think that's important to point out, now came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. It would be uh, millions upon millions of dollars worth. But there's a couple things we need to point out here. These people had already confessed belief, but held on to two things. Number one, they did not confess their sins to one another. They never brought their sins to light. And what happens when you don't bring your sin to light is that sin begins to have power over you. 
because you feel shame and you feel guilt about this sin and you think that you're nothing and you don't actually believe that Jesus has made you righteous, that Jesus has made you holy, that Jesus has washed you. And so you hold on to this sin and it has power over you. When you confess that sin, that sin no longer has power over you. Because you're recognizing that Jesus has washed you, Jesus has justified you, Jesus has made you righteous. So confession is huge, and that's one of the reasons why we need healthy churches, so that we can gather together and confess our sins to one another. And so that sin would no longer have power over us. But number two is, in this culture the power of magic was in its secrecy. So they believed that you could have more power if you had some magical secret that no one else had. And so they held on for two years. Some of them held on to this thing that they thought was powerful. They had confessed belief in Jesus. They, they, I think that they're here called believers. So who am I to question what God's Word calls people, right? That they had confessed belief. They put their faith and trust in Christ. They realized that, that Christ had saved them from their sins. And yet, they were holding on to something else for power. And how often do we do that? We confess Jesus, and yet we think we need to hold on to something else. Maybe it's money, prestige, maybe it's political party or political clout. And we think we've got to hold on to that thing for power in our life. And here they realize that their magic had no power over Jesus that Jesus is the ultimate source of power and there is nothing that is more powerful. And so what do they do? Instead of holding on to these secrets that they think can bring them power, they confess them and they burn them. And they say, no longer do I want anything besides Jesus. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the theme of Acts the increasing Word of God, nothing can stop it. There's no earthly power that can stop the Word of God. There's no government. There's no amount of persecution. There's no philosophy. There's no new ideology. Nothing can stop the Word of God. Nothing can stop the Gospel. It will always carry on because it is powerful. And so the church at Ephesus finally realizes this, and they gather together and they burn their books, and, and, and this is what causes the riot. The people that, that were at the temple said, hey, we got to stop this thing. It's burning out of control. They think they're more powerful than we are. And so we see from this introduction that, that the people, the church at Ephesus, were on fire for God. But then we can turn over to Revelation 7, which is written in 90 AD, and we see, or sorry, not Revelation 7, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, and we see a letter that's written to a church that used to have an intense love for the gospel, an intense love for Christ, and then they are called out. He tells them even, hey, you guys have great doctrine, but you've lost your love. 
You've let it fade. I think Paul writes the letter of, uh, of Ephesians encouraging them, knowing that that's the direction they're going. Knowing that every church, at first, when you, and every Christian, when you put your faith and trust in Christ and you experience that transformational power, you're on fire for God. And yet, as we gather together as a church and we hear, I think of the church in Ephesus, they would hear, For eight years, they would gather together and they would sing the same songs and they would hear the same boring sermon from the same elder for eight years. For eight years, they would be rubbing up against each other and and offending one another. For eight years, they might be ignoring that one person that they just don't like the smell of. For eight years, they started to let their love grow cold. Because for eight years they forgot the power of the gospel that they experienced in those first two years. And every church struggles with the same thing. It is the gospel that has the power of salvation. And we gather together and we start to go through the motions and we start to go through ritual, and we forget that it's not the ritual, it's not the motions, it is the gospel. And we gather here, not because we have to, and not because it gives us some supernatural power. We gather together because we recognize the power of the gospel. That's what the letter to the Ephesians is going to be all about. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gospel, which is the most powerful thing the church has. No amount of wealth, no amount of government force can stop your gospel. And we pray that as we study Ephesians, you would help us to remember that. Help us to remember that your gospel is so powerful that it changed our hearts. It turned us from being slaves to sin, where sin had power over us, to being free in you. And we pray that you would help us to be good stewards of that gospel. That we would share that gospel with a community that so desperately needs to hear it. In your name we pray. Amen.